Hi friends, welcome to the FBC Zealand Teaching Podcast. We are a local church in Zealand, Michigan, and we desire to know Christ and to make Him known. We invite you into the same journey with us now as we open the scriptures and as we ask God to teach us and reveal Himself to us in His Word. Thanks for stopping by. Well, good morning, everybody. So good to see you. I had a little bit of southern drawl there. I'm sorry. I'm not really from the south. I'm from Ohio. Um, and we're not apparently that good in basketball, at least this last weekend, if you care about basketball. Uh, yes, yes. It was a sad day in the Cobb household and a buster for part of my bracket. So anyways, moving on to much more important things this morning. Would you turn in your scriptures with me to Luke chapter 19? Uh, I want to welcome all of you, especially who are joining us via live stream. My family and I got to join via live stream last week, and, and um, it, it, was, it was a gift to be able to join a community and be distant, but still be here. And so I'm thankful for all the people who helped make that happen uh, last week and in all these weeks in the past year or so. Um, Luke 19. Um, you were here last week with Pastor Cameron as you opened up and, and you began to talk about a number of different people and their stories in the latter part of chapter 18. But then as we go into Luke chapter 19, you get this amazing story of Zacchaeus, a guy whose life is radically, radically transformed by Jesus, you know, who, whose heart is completely moved when Jesus says, hey, Zacchaeus, come down from that tree. I'm coming to your house. And I would love to be a, a fly on the wall of that conversation and that interchange that Jesus had with this guy whom everybody knew was absolutely wicked. I mean, you could essentially call him the godfather of Jericho because he extorted so much. But, but understanding how much Jesus loved him there's incredible transformation that comes to his life. And we're going to pick up at the end of that story with what we are looking at this morning here in Luke chapter 19. And so um, I want to invite you, uh, if you're not there, Luke 19. And here's the context. Before we read it, let me just give you the picture. Um, oh, that's not yet. Let me give you this. Um, we are... Um, we are at a point where Jesus is getting ready to go up to Jerusalem. Okay, he's getting ready to go up to Jerusalem. And so he's been in Jericho, and you can kind of see where the Herodian palaces are in Jericho. And here's the walk you would take in order to go to Jerusalem. You'd go up past Cypros, up to the ascent of Adamine. You'd go past Wadi, the Wadi Kilt. You'd go past what is traditionally known as the Good Samaritan Inn. And eventually you would get to where Jerusalem is. Jesus has about 17 or 18 miles, depending on where he starts from, to go from Jericho to Jerusalem. And in Luke chapter 9, it tells us, I believe it's Luke chapter 9, it says that Jesus resolutely set his face toward Jerusalem. Here's why you need to know that. In beginning in Luke 9, Jesus is anticipating what he is going to do on the cross. He is setting his sight toward the offering of himself that he is going to give for the sins of the people. And our story today happens essentially about two weeks before Jesus goes to the cross. So he's coming, getting ready to come into Jerusalem, and then he's going to have things like um, the, the triumphal entry, what we commonly term as Palm Sunday. He's going to come in. He's going to celebrate Passover in Jerusalem with his disciples. He's going to be betrayed. He's going to be arrested, and then he's going to die, and then he's going to raise again. And, and so it's not terribly far off, because we're really only a couple weeks away from Easter, from Resurrection Sunday, which coincides with Passover in the biblical calendar here. So this is the picture of Jesus going up here, and we know from the text that Jesus is near Jerusalem. So he has walked this path, and he's getting close to a city that he loved, a city that he loved because they, it was filled with people that he loved and filled with the presence of his Father dwelling in the temple. And this is the context that we find ourselves when Jesus tells this story. Um, so would you stand with me and let us read together. Luke chapter 19, 
Verse 11. As they were listening to this, but this is the whole Zacchaeus narrative. He went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and they thought the kingdom of God was going to appear right away. Therefore, he said, a nobleman was traveled or traveled to a far country to receive for himself authority to be king and then return. He called 10 of his slaves or servants. He gave them 10 minas and he told them, engage in business until I come back. But his subjects hated him, and he sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to rule over us. At his return, having received the authority to be king, he summoned those slaves that he had given the money to, so that he could find out how much they had made in business. The first came forward and said, Master, your mina has earned ten more minas. Well done, good slave, he said, because you have been faithful in a very small matter, have authority over 10 towns. The second came and said, Master, your mina has made five minas. So he said to him, you will be over five towns. And another came and said, Master, here is your mina. I've kept it hidden away in a cloth because I was afraid of you, for you are a tough man. You collect what you didn't deposit and you reap what you didn't sow. He told him, I will judge you by what you have said, you evil slave. If you knew I was a tough man collecting what I didn't deposit and reaping what I didn't sow, why didn't you put my money in the bank? And when I returned, I would have collected it with interest. So he said to those standing there, take the mina away from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. But they said to him, master, he has 10 minas. I tell you, that to everyone who has, more will be given. And from the one who does not have, even what he does have will be taken away. But bring here these enemies of mine who do, did not want me to rule over them and slaughter them in my presence. Let's pray. Our Father and our King, I pray that you would help us understand the meaning of Jesus' words in this parable and this story. And that in doing so, God you would help us learn what it means to live more faithfully to your honor and to your glory. We bless you, God, and we thank you for the gift of today. Be glorified in all we say and do. We pray in the name of Jesus. Together we say, amen. amen. Please be seated. All right. Now, back to this picture. Um, this picture right here. Um, how many of you have ever seen the bumper sticker? I think it was a bumper sticker back when I was a kid, but maybe it predates me a little bit. I don't know. Uh, it's this bumper sticker that says, he who dies with the most toys wins. Anybody ever seen that one? All right. It's usually on the back of like something pulling a boat or something pulling something else. That's at least where I've seen it. Um, toys and, and things in life are something that many of us collect. All right, here's part of our Lego stuff. I take no credit for the amazing work done by my kids here. Um, and, and it's even made it through a move and everything like that. So this is just a couple components of Legos. Uh, some of them are around this. Some of them are on the floor. And if, if you're a parent, you ever step on a Lego, you're just like, Oh, they're the, they hurt. Um, anyways, that's not important. Um, you have this, you have this saying, he who dies with the most toys wins. You also have another saying, and it goes like this. Um, he who dies with the most toys still dies. How many of you have ever seen that one? Okay, a couple of you have seen that. So you have these two statements, and what they say is this. On the one hand, the first one says, hey, it matters to have a lot of stuff. And on the other hand, the other one says it really doesn't matter because at the end of everything in life, you can't take it with you. Now, Jesus is going to be talking about in this parable, how do his people live when the master is away? What, what, should, what should be their, um, their conduct? What should be their focus? What should be their priorities for life? And it's not a get rid of stuff kind of thing. It's what do you do with what God has given you? How do you purpose it for things that matter to God? And we know from last week's story what matters to God. Because if you look at verse 10 of Luke chapter 19, Jesus gives an incredible purpose statement. In fact, some writers have said this is one of the, the focal points, if not the focal point of Luke's gospel. He says, for the Son of Man, he's talking about himself, he has come to seek and save that which is lost. That's why Jesus came. 
is because there's a whole group of people, humanity, who are lost. They walk in darkness, and he comes to bring light to them, to bring the light of truth, to bring the light of his life, and to give them hope that exists beyond tomorrow. All right? So um, it's not about stuff. It's not about whether you have a lot. It's not about whether you have a little. It's about what do you do with what God has given you, okay? So Jericho, Jerusalem, good. Jerusalem, you can see the uh, Dome of the Rock in the middle there with the gold, with the gold um, dome, which is the proper word. Uh, and that whole, uh, that square around it, the rectangle around it, that's all the temple property right there. And then you can see the city as it stands uh, fairly, fairly currently there. Um, the big idea I want you to get out of today is this. Faithful servants know their master's heart and they do their master's will. Faithful servants know their master's heart and they do their master's will. So Jesus is coming near the end of his days. So if you were coming near the end of your days, you knew you were going to come to um, Passover and Jesus knows what's coming. What would you want to communicate to your people? You know you're going to be gone for some time. You want to help them understand how do you live while I'm not here? What's the focus and the priority of what you should be doing? And so it says in verse 11, as they were listening to this, they, they're, they're hearing this conversation about, you know, Jesus has come to seek and save that which is lost. He goes on to tell them a parable or tell them a story because he's near Jerusalem. He knows what's coming. And they thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear right away. They, they had this idea, many of them did, that, oh, Jesus is going to come in. He's going to be king. He's maybe going to overthrow the Romans. He's maybe going to take over religious leadership, over all the corruption that happens in the temple system. But Jesus wants to set their minds right. They're thinking, we're hailing a king, and they are, but not in the way that they think so. They, they expected, according to one... Um, According to one scholar, they, they expected that the kingdom was going to appear right away, that there was going to be a decisive demonstration of regal authority. That, that's what the Jews commonly expected of from the Messiah. But Jesus cares about how his people live in the present, and so he tells them a story as any good rabbi would. Jesus, the master storyteller. And he tells them a story about a nobleman, all right? A nobleman, he traveled to a far country to receive for himself authority to be king, verse 12, and then return. He called 10 of his slaves or servants, and he gave them 10 minas, and he tells them, engage in business until I come back. All right. So um, here the nobleman is going away to receive a kingdom. Now, this is not a, uh, an unknown um, situation in the first century context. And in fact, the, the king, Herod the Great, um, who died in 4 BC, he, he left his kingdom, which was over several different provinces, he left it to several of his sons. The, the son whom he left it to, who is over, who is given Judea, which is where this is taking place, his name is Archelaus. Can you say Archelaus? Archelaus. Okay, so King Herod leaves the kingdom to Archelaus. Now, Archelaus, though, doesn't just receive the kingdom upon that. What he has to do is he has to go to Rome, because although there's a king over the province and the region, Rome is in charge. So R Rome is like the global power of the day, whose hands are involved in everything. So what Archelaus has to do, and what he does, is upon his his dad's death, he has to go to Rome and say, Caesar, can I receive the kingship that my father Herod gave to me? All right, that's what he has to do, and that's what he does. So he goes to do that. So this is a picture that they understand. And in that specific instance, um, Archelaus goes, but then there's a, a, um, a group of Jewish people who did not like Archelaus because he wasn't the kindest person. He was very exacting. Uh, he, he didn't have a lot of credibility with the Jewish people, at least not all of them. And so there was actually a delegation that goes to Rome to say to Caesar, we don't want him to be our king. 
All right? So, so the picture historically here, they go, okay, we've seen this before, okay? Th th this isn't just some crazy random historical thing. We actually know a king who had to go get his kingdom and come back, and we actually know people who went because they didn't like him. All right? He, he's, he's, he's giving them a picture that they understand. In verse 14, it says, But his subjects hated him, and he sent a delegation after him, saying, We don't want this man to rule over us. The point is this. Archelaus isn't the king in Jesus' story. The, the, the point is, is that there's a king who's going to go receive his kingdom. And while he's gone, he's going to leave things that he has entrusted to other people. And that's what he does. So he calls 10 of his slaves or 10 of his servants, and he gives them 10 minas. Now, a mina uh, looks like this. This is a mina from about AD 100 to AD 200. Um, it began as a measure of weight, but it also became used as a type of currency. And so this could be traded. And, and a mina is roughly equivalent to uh, 100 days wages. 100 days wages. That's a, that's a decent amount of money, especially in an agrarian economy when you don't, like, everyone doesn't just have loads of cash in the bank, all right? Some people incredibly well off, a lot of peasant poor people. And so the, the, the master of this estate, the nobleman, is, is giving them something to be entrusted with, but he, he gives it to them with a purpose. He says, take this and engage in business until I come back. All right. He doesn't tell them to hold it. He doesn't tell them to hide it. He says, I want you to do something with this. He's trusting them with a decent amount of money. Uh, a while ago, I did a comparative analysis of what that would be in the current time. And this was like two, 2018, 2019. And it was somewhere around like $12,000. It'd be like someone walking up to you, or not randomly walking up to you. You work for someone. They say, here's $12,000. I want you to use this to engage in business while I'm gone. When I come back, let's see how you did, all right? So you have, you have this, and it says in verse 15, um, it says in verse 15, at his return, having received the authority to be king, he summoned those slaves he had given the money to so he could find out how much they had made in business. The first came forward and he said, master, your mina has earned 10 more minas. All right. So this is a crazy, ridiculous yield. Like in investing terms, Nate, that's pretty good, right? That's decent. Okay, I get a thumbs up. Math is not my thing. Uh, so so he, he yields quite a bit. And then we have the second servant who comes and he says, Master, your mina has made five minas. All right? That's a pretty good yield. Okay? Like, that's, that's, that's awesome. We don't know how long he's been gone, but they have taken his word seriously and they've invested what he has entrusted to them and they've used it to further his interests. All right. Some of his interests might be stuff like this. Here's a, a, a demonstration of Nabataean traders. All right. The Nabataeans were well known for trading. They come from the southern, the southern part of, of Israel, even down, even down further. And um, that actually might even be in Petra. The rock kind of looks like a place called Petra, which is in Jordan. Um, but but you, you get goods and you trade them for other goods and you trade them for other goods. He, he's invested his time and his resources well to make more of this investment. So uh, in verse, um, in verse nine, or in verse 17, you'll notice that um, the master says, well done, good slave. He says, because you have been faithful in a very small matter, have authority over 10 towns. So he goes from having something like this to amazingly multiplying this through the gifts that he had been given um, by the Lord. And he's given a town, okay? Here's one of the towns in the Decapolis. The Decapolis is a region of 10 towns over on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. So he goes from saying, hey, here's something that I have engaged in business with. Here it is. It's yours. And the master says, let me give you this. And he gives him 10 of these suckers. Okay. The second person comes and he says, here's what you've given me. I have five, you know, more, more of these or whatever, five more towns. He gives them back to the master and the master says, hey, I've entrusted you with a little bit. Let me give you five of these things. Because they'd been faithful with something small, they were given something immense to steward and to care for. 
Then we come to the third. Now, it's interesting because there's 10 people, and the first two have positive returns. The third, uh, we're going to talk about him in a minute, but there's seven here that aren't even mentioned. I don't think it's important to Jesus' story, but I wonder, I wonder what the other seven did. This is just Jeremy's meanderings. Um, so the third one comes up, and he says, Master, here is your mina. I've kept it hidden away in the cloth. Why? Because I was afraid of you, for you are a tough man. You collect what you didn't deposit, and you reap what you didn't sow. We've already been introduced to a group of people who have hated the master, who have hated the nobleman. Part of those people went away to the far country to say, we don't want him to be king over us. But now we have a servant who has been entrusted with something, but he seems to have a very similar attitude towards the master. Because it's not just that he doesn't yield anything. Notice how he doesn't yield it. I kept it hidden away in a cloth. All right? He's been given something of great value. A hundred days wages. A hundred days wages. And he just puts it in a cloth and essentially puts it in his pocket. And he just holds it there for the duration of the time that the master has been gone. And when the master comes back, he says, here you go, here's your stuff. The master's like, hang on a second here. What's going on? There's a notable difference between the first two and the third. And it's not just the yield. It's the attitude and the heart behind the lack of yield. Master, here's your mean. I've kept it hidden away in a cloth because I was afraid of you. You are a tough man. He believes that you collect where you didn't deposit and you reap where you didn't sow. Wrapping money, one scholar says, in a perishable handkerchief was considered to be one of the most irresponsible ways to take care of money. And here's what it suggests, according to Dr. Craig Keener. It suggests that the servant was stupid or treasonous or most likely both. All right? He, he, he has a heart that is not bent towards his master because he doubts the very motives of his master. Now, this servant was afraid of him. He believes he's a tough man. Um, you could translate that word exacting or severe or harsh. He believes that he collects what he doesn't deposit and reaps what he doesn't sow. He, the point is this. He may be a servant, but he's really unwilling to serve. He, he's unwilling to serve, and he does not trust the character of the master. Um, as a result, he does not even act wisely with what he has been given. He neglects this task that he has been charged with in the most ridiculous of ways. And the master calls him out on it. He tells him, in verse 22, I will judge you by what you have said Notice what he calls him, you evil slave. You evil slave. If you knew I was a tough man, collecting what I didn't deposit, reaping what I didn't sow, why didn't you put my money in the bank? And when I returned, I would have collected it with interest. So he said to those standing there, take the mean away from him and give it to the one who has 10. The master says, you could have done something just even basically simple. You could have gone down and gotten 0.2% Somewhere down at a bank. That would have been the least you could have done. Why didn't you do that? And of course, the answer is because the servant has no regard for his master. He's a servant, but he's not a servant. He, he may be there, but he's not really there. He's not invested in what the master wants to do and is doing. And the master calls him an evil slave. Now, it's interesting. The, the phrase evil slave um, pops up a couple different times in the Gospels. Um, one of the times is in the parable of the talents, which is in Matthew 25. And that's a very similar account to this one, so I'm not going to cross-reference a ton um, this morning. But um, there's another time that pops up that I find really interesting. In, in Matthew chapter 18 and verse 32, it, it describes another master um, who calls a servant before him, and this servant owes him a great deal of money. In fact, it's so much money that he can't even pay for it as a servant. And, and he comes and he asks the master for mercy. 
And the master doesn't just give him mercy to be like, hey, you can try to pay it next time. He actually wipes away and erases the debt completely. Okay, so this servant who has experienced incredible grace from the master, um, he goes out, and what do you think the first thing he does is? He finds someone else, another servant, who owes him money, and he says, hey, you owe me money, all right? He's just been forgiven a lot of money, a lot of resource. He's been extended mercy, and he goes to find someone else who does owe him, and the text says basically a small little portion, all right? He's owed just a minuscule amount of money from this other person. And that person says to him, I don't have it. I, I, I don't. Can I have mercy? And he says, no. And he gets him thrown in prison. And in Jesus' story, he calls him an evil servant. He calls him an evil servant. The, the, the one who experienced incredible grace, but was unwilling to extend it to the next person, he calls evil. Because in doing so, he demonstrates he never really understood the grace that he had been given in the first place. Because as another story that Jesus tells, the one who's been forgiven of much loves much. When we recognize how much we have been forgiven by God, one of the things that should well up within us is forgiveness towards others. It's just the natural overflow of experiencing God's mercy. Anyways, back to our story. The master basically says in Luke chapter 19, if you really thought I was harsh and exacting, why did you not at least treat my resources with the minimal appropriate amount of care? And then he goes and he removes all stewardship authority from the one who has has not been faithful and he gives it to the one who was. Now, it's interesting because after that, they're like in verse 25 of Luke 19, they say, but they said to him, master, he has 10 minas. Why are you giving him more? Well, and Jesus goes on to explain this principle. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. Why? Because as they've been faithful with the small amount that they've been given, more responsibility is added to them. This is a great training tool for young people. This is a great training tool in business, when you see someone who has excelled in what you've asked them to do, you give them more as is appropriate. Because if you're faithful with small things, chances are you will be faithful with larger things. And the opposite is true. If you can't handle the small things, why would you be trusted with the larger things? Jesus says, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. And from the one who does not have, even what he does have will be taken away. But bring here these enemies of mine who who did not want me to rule over them and slaughter them in my presence or execute them in my presence. It's not uncommon at this time in history. You have a new king that comes in and takes control. And all the people who had been anti that king. You can imagine the delegation that had gone out. They don't want him as king. They don't want him to rule over them. So they're going to be a nuisance. They're going to be a problem to any king. Imagine Archelaus coming in to rule. He likely, I don't know this for certain, but he likely had people who were against him, and he probably made sure that they were either removed one way or another so that they would not be against him in kingdom, because kingdom is all about establishing your authority and your reign as king and keeping hold of it as best you can through whatever means in this time and period. Now, it, it, it's, it's interesting. Uh, Jesus uses this phrase, um, everyone who has more will be given. From the one who does not have, even what he does have will be taken away. And he's kind of going back to something he said earlier in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, you can hold your finger there if you'd like. And turn with me, please, to Luke chapter 8. In Luke chapter 8, it's a story of the parable of the sower. Now, you guys know the parable of the sower. We looked at it from Matthew's gospel. In Luke's gospel, um, I'll just remind you the whole point of the story of the parable of the sower. The kingdom of God is, is like a seed that's dropped into four different kinds of ground. And really, the parable of the sower is the parable of the soils or the parable of the dirt. And one of the things we talked about is um, the, the kind of dirt that yields a harvest that 
produces food for people, the kind of dirt that does that is the kind of dirt that is well-tended and it's ready to hear and to respond, to listen to whatever the masters say. Uh, Jesus likens this, you know, like if my, if my word, he says, falls upon good ground, ears that hear with, with um, things in your life that aren't going to crowd out my word, if my word is prioritized, that will yield an incredible um, harvest. And, and it's not that um, we create harvest in and of ourselves. It's that we're, we're mindful of our hearts and our lives and we say, all right, God, you've said this. I will honor. I will obey that. And what happens when we obey God's word is great spiritual blessing and great spiritual fruit comes from it. And the more we experience that, the greater harvest we have. And so this photo right here is one that I showed you, I believe, a while back. Or I showed you something like it. You have your Sea of Galilee to your right there. You have all these plains down below. Um, and this is taken from Mount Arbel, which is in the northern part of the Galilee. And this is an incredible, fertile place where lots of crops were grown. And, and Jesus even talks about in the parable of the soils, you know, the, the, the yield can be just incredible, even up to a hundred times. And there's certain places that they have on record that have had such incredible yields because the soil was well tended and it was ready to receive the seed that was planted in it. So you have the parable of the, the sower, the parable of the soils here. But right after that, Jesus says this in verse 16. No one, after lighting a lamp, covers it with a bucket or a basket and puts it under a bed or puts it under a bed, but puts it on a lampstand so that those who come in may see its light. For nothing is concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known and come to light. He says in verse 18, therefore, take care how you listen. And the idea of listen here is not just to hear, but it's to hear and to do. Take care of how you listen. For whoever has, more will be given to him. And whoever does not have, even what he thinks he has will be taken away from him. There's our similar verse to Luke 19. What is Jesus talking about? At the end of the parable of the sowers, he begins talking about a light. All right. Likely something like this. There's a whole bunch of different things. Um, be something like this, if you can see that. This is a model of a first century oil lamp we bought when we were in Bethlehem several years back. And what you do is you put oil in this, you put a wick in this, and then you light it. And you can do a couple of things with this. I mean, you could walk around like this and you could provide light for what's right immediately in front of you. Um, Jesus says, if you light something like this, you're not going to put it under something. Because if you do that, not only will it burn my table down, it will also not provide any benefit to anyone around it. The, the light is something that is supposed to be, especially in a world um, of Jesus' time where there's no street lamps and there's no light-emitting devices or anything like that. When it's dark, friends, it's dark. You know, unless you've got a full moon or a half moon or something like that, or some stars, which I imagine were brilliant, it's dark. Jesus says, no one's going to take a lamp and they're going to cover it or they're going to put it under a bed. Instead, they're going to put it on a lampstand. They're, they're going to put it on a cleft in the wall or on a table or some way for it to be held up. Because when it's held up, it doesn't just benefit the one who's holding it. It benefits all who are around them. And this is the amazing thing that, that Jesus wants his hearers' lives to look like. Hey, if, if you have light in you, don't hide it under a basket. He says it this way in Matthew's gospel in a different passage. Um, in the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds. And what? Praise your Father in heaven. Glorify your Father in heaven. The purpose of light is to put it on display because when you have a light on display, the darkness scatters. And I love this kind of light because this light is a soft light, but it's there. It, it, it's a light that is inviting, but it's penetrating. All right? He didn't pull out the... the um, what do they have today? They have all these light guns and stuff. Like my dad has one of these things. And when one of the dogs can't be found in the middle of the night, he's got this big gun and he's just like searching for it. Um, Jesus is saying, hey, you've got a light, put it up. Because when you put it up, it begins to illuminate. And that's just like when you're obedient to my word, when you hear 
and you obey, your works become something that people go, hang on a second, that looks different. That looks absolutely different. Jesus urges his audience, Dr. Darabach says, to be careful in how they listen. The stakes are high. The, the one who has listened by responding to the word will receive more. But as for those who think they have something but do not have anything because they did not receive the word, even what they thought they had will be taken away. He says this, to refuse to hear God's word is to be left desolate and naked before God. Imagine Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, incredibly wicked man, and everybody knew he was a sinner, right? Everyone knew it. Jesus comes to his house, and when Jesus leaves, man, Zacchaeus' life is forever changed. And we know that not just because of a confession, but we see it in how he acts. In Luke's gospel, he, he goes and he seeks to make things right that he had wronged. He, he goes to the most that he possibly can not to earn favor with God, because your works, our works, never earn favor with God. He goes because Jesus had radically transformed his life. And he goes, what else would I do but share this transformation? So you can imagine, you know, he swindled you and you and you and you out of money. He comes up to you and he says, hey, I remember I swindled you. Here's four times what I did. And they go, hang on a second, aren't you the guy who's the chief tax collector of Jericho, this really big city, and you're giving me money? He goes, yes. Can you imagine the conversations that came from that? Because Zacchaeus knew that he had been forgiven much, he loved much. And it's the same thing with us, right? I was thinking about this last night. Um, so many of our young people today are faced with so many challenging things, all right? You're, you're in a relationship. How do you honor God in that relationship? Well, you allow God's word to dwell in you, and you faithfully do what it says. But here's the amazing thing. As you do that, even with all the struggles that come with that, as you do that, you honor God in that relationship, guess what happens? People go, hang on a second, your relationship looks different than a lot of the other ones that I've seen around. Why? You're in business, and um, you deal honestly with customers. And maybe there's quicker and easier ways to get ahead. Maybe there's other ways to manage the books in order to um, have an advantage to your favor. As you deal honestly, frankly, there's going to be some people, I would imagine, who don't understand it. They're like, why would you do that? Why didn't you just do this? You'd make a whole lot more money. But when you seek to honor Jesus in everything you do and to honor his word in everything you do, the reason changes. You're honest because God calls you to be. And as you do that, God is giving you a platform in order to say, Look at what Jesus has done in my life. Can I just share a little bit of why I act and why I respond the way I do? Maybe you're facing a very difficult illness today. And it's step after step after step. And it's really, really challenging. In all situations in life, we can choose to wallow in our own self-pity. We can choose to receive the grace and the mercy and the strength that comes from Christ. When we choose to receive the grace and the mercy and the strength that comes from Christ, people look at that and they go, I don't understand why you have hope in the middle of this situation. I, 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 don't, I don't get it. How can you mourn with joy facing what you're facing? And that becomes a moment to let your light shine so that men might see your good deeds and praise your Father who is in heaven. Luke chapter 19, Jesus comes to the end of this and he recognizes that judgment will come one day. He recognizes that judgment is going to come one day. Bring here these enemies of mine who did not want me to rule over them. Slaughter them in my presence. But remember why Jesus came. Jesus came, according to Luke 19, verse 10, because the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which is lost.
My friends, when we were lost, Christ died for us. I know of very few other ways to demonstrate to you how much you are loved by God. When you were lost, when I was lost, and believe you me, I was lost. I was lost in my own sins of anger and of pride. When I was lost, Christ had died for me. The Son of Man has come not just to die, but to seek and to save. That is the heart of God for people. And when Jesus says, hey, let me tell you a parable. There's a nobleman who's going to travel to a faraway place. He's referring to, hey, by the way, I'm going to be gone for a little while. I've got some work to entrust to you as I leave. And the work he has entrusted to us is, is the gospel and people. It's the gospel of the kingdom of God. The good news that Jesus saves and that anyone who repents of their sin and trusts Jesus, trusts Jesus alone, comes into relationship with a father who desperately loves them and wants to know them personally. In fact, in, um, in 2 Peter chapter 3, um, it talks about um, how the day of the Lord is going to come like a thief in the night. You know, it's, it's going to appear. The, the judgment's going to appear, and you're not going to see it. It's going to... Boom, here we go. But right before that, it says this. It says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. His promise to return, that is. He's not slow in keeping his promise. He is patient. Why would God be patient in a world full of sin and rebellion against him? Peter says, he's not wanting any to perish, but he's wanting all to come to repentance. See, God has given his people a message to steward while he is away. The proclamation of the kingdom, the active rule of God in a person who repents of their sin and trusts Jesus. And servants of the king, they know their master's heart. They know he cares about people. But they don't just know his heart, they do his will. Not to earn anything with him, but out of a response of love and faithfulness for the one who has sought them. God has given us a message to steward while he, was, while he is away. That's the main point of the parable. Now, how and where this message is lived out is going to look differently. And I actually absolutely love this because your life is different than mine, okay? Your, your life is different than mine. You have different people in your life that I do not have in mine. The people whom God has placed in your life, he has called you to steward them well. You steward them well by pointing them to Jesus in everything you do. That doesn't mean necessarily putting a bullhorn in their face, it may mean speaking truth very plainly to some of them. God will give you those opportunities. I was talking with a friend this morning whom God gave an opportunity to share truth with. The person didn't come to faith yet. <laughs> but God is working, and they're faithfully proclaiming, and I'm so encouraged by that. I, I had a young man come up to me several weeks ago, and he said, hey, Pastor Jeremy, I want to tell you I accepted Christ this last week. And I went, Yes, so good. And one of the things that God used in his life was parents who consistently engaged him with the message of Jesus. God has given each of you a different degree and sphere of influence. And he's given that to you to proclaim the kingdom, to proclaim the kingdom, the good news that Jesus saves. That is our call to make disciples or to make followers of all the nations, including here. Whom has God placed in your life today? Who does God want you to be sharing the message of Jesus with? Now, maybe you think about it and you're like, okay, I've, oof, I don't have many. Then maybe it's time to say, all right, Lord, 
bring people into my life. God, help me to be intentional with sharing the message of Jesus. I've got a good friend who, my, I, I just, I love this brother so much. He gets people to, to or he doesn't get people, like he, he has something go wrong in his house and he has workers come in and they, they work on it. And he's sharing the gospel with them within 15 minutes and they're there to work. So, you know, he does it in a loving, kind way, but he's very direct. He takes what God has given him and he uses it. He uses it intentionally for the kingdom. There's a lot I can learn uh, in, in those regards. Here's the idea. Faithfulness matters in the small things. What would it look like for your life to be faithfully representing Jesus tomorrow? Not even tomorrow, today, right? You're going to go to lunch. What would it look like for your life to faithfully represent the gospel of Jesus wherever you're going to go eat? At home, with family, restaurant, with other people around, what would it look like for you? God is giving you, follower of Jesus, the opportunity to make Christ known in your life. And you can be an under 10-year-old who accepts Jesus and go right away to sharing, hey, here's what Jesus has done in my life. Can I tell you what he can do in yours? Our attentiveness to the kingdom is ultimately a reflection of our hearts. It's ultimately a reflection of our hearts. We prioritize what we value most. Let me say that again. We prioritize what we value most. What do you value today? God has given us together and you as individuals, as followers of Jesus, he's given you many gifts and resources to use for his glory. The question is not what has he given you. It's how will you engage in business until the master returns? How will you take what has been entrusted to you and seek with the help of God to share it with those around you? What has God given you to steward? It may be small, family, a community group, coworkers, a ministry role. Be faithful in whatever God has given you. And as you're faithful in what God has given you, my experience and my observation is God will continue to give you more and more and more opportunities to be a witness for him in our world. Faithfulness in the small things is not small in God's eyes. It's actually really, really important. My big idea, I shared with you at the beginning, faithful servants know their master's heart. They trust him and they do his will. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray that you would forgive us God, forgive us for the many ways in which our personal priorities drive our lives in ways that don't always reflect your kingdom. God, I pray, um, I pray that you would help us to know you more. Because the more we know you, the more the grace and the mercy that we have received from you becomes just a natural part of the overflow of our life. God, I pray for people who are far from you today. God, your word says that you came to seek and save those who are lost. And um, there, there are many, God, who are searching and who are lost in this world. And God, as you, as you prepare to send us out from this place in a few moments, God, help us to go out and to let our light shine before men that they may see our good deeds and praise our Father who's in heaven. Lord, may our, may our lives look decidedly different. And God, as we are given opportunity, may we share the message of Jesus passionately of how you have transformed our life because ultimately, God, that is what you've given us. You've given us our own story to say, Man, here's how I was before you and God. Here's what you have changed me to become. Holy and righteous and blameless in your sight. Your child.
by grace through faith. And while, God, we still learn day by day ways in which our lives do not match up with you, God, give us a passion to have good soil, that the word of God might grow us into the mature followers of Jesus you want us to be in this world. God, I pray for those struggling in, in any different way today. Maybe it's relationally, maybe it's at work, maybe it's with health. God, encourage them, help them to know beyond the shadow of a doubt that if their hope is in Jesus, their hope is secure and that they have life, not just today, they have life forevermore, that they will one day for always be with you. And God, break our hearts for people who are far from you, people who are without hope, people who are without you. God, give us a great passion to clearly share with them the saving message that Jesus died and rose again to pay for their sins and that there's no other way they can be made right with God except through this gracious, redemptive initiative that you have made possible. We bless you, Father, and we thank you for life today in Jesus. We thank you for gifts like sunshine and warmth. We thank you, God, for gifts of community in friendship. We bless you, Lord God. You are king, you are sovereign, and you are good. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me as we dismiss? As you go today, may you be reminded that Jesus calls us to let our light shine before men. May the light of Christ shine in you so that as people look at your life, they wouldn't see you, they'd see Jesus. May they see that in all ways as you grow in faithfulness to the big and the small. May you again trust Jesus for all you need to walk out a life worthy of the calling that you and I have received. And may the love of God go with you and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ bless you this week as you receive his peace and you walk in his faithfulness. Thanks for listening. We hope that what you heard inspires you to take the next step in your faith. If you have questions about this message or would like more information about our church, we invite you to check us out at fbczealand.org or call us at 616-772-4377.